Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Ribbon. This podcast is brought to you by Pete's Car Smart Kia. These guys are not here just to sell you a car, but they believe in building relationships with their customers and the community. Visit their website at petescarsmartkia.com and be sure to follow them on their social media platforms as well. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Ribbon. My name is Ryan Parnell and as always I'm joined by my co-host and oncology nurse Pam McMillan. Hey, Ron. How are you today? Pam, I'm doing great for this Tuesday. How are you? I'm good. Hey, um, have you ever had to take care of your kids when they're sick? Yes. What about your wife? Uh, yes. You get frustrated? You know, um, I hope she's not listening, but yes, <laughs> you, it is. I think it's natural to be frustrated in those instances. Right. And it's hard. Um, I know a lot of our survivors, um, their caregivers have a hard time. And today we're talking about caregiver fatigue, which I think is important um, for all of the listeners out there. Absolutely. You know, uh, I'll just interrupt here for a second and say, I never really knew the extent of caregiver fatigue until it happened to me. Right. Um, you know, when uh, my wife was going through a bunch of sinus surgeries and hospitalizations and so forth, which I'm not trying to equate this to cancer by any stretch of the imagination, but caregiver fatigue, I mean, is still real, whether it's an oncology do- diagnosis or whether it is sick children or whatever the case may be. Um, and yeah, I found myself and it hit me like a ton of bricks, like this is real. And so, uh, yeah, we're, we're thrilled to be able to bring this episode uh, to our listeners. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's great, too, because we get to have a repeat guest, right? Right. So uh, if, I tell you, if you have listened, um, been listening to Beyond the Ribbon, uh, hopefully you listened to one of our first couple of episodes on uh, post-traumatic stress disorder where we had uh, Liz Clark. And uh, we're so lucky, as we've said before, to have Liz as a, um, an arrow in our quiver, you know, of tools that we have that's available for our survivors and our, our programs. And so uh, Liz is here today uh, to discuss with us about uh, caregiver fatigue and caregiver burnout. Liz, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be back. Yes. You know, um, and and again, I would encourage anybody who has not listened to the PTSD episode, please, please, please put that on your to-do list. Some of this may bleed over a little bit, um, in there. And, um, you know, we want to make sure that, that everybody is up to speed. And so Liz is a licensed professional counselor here in town that we work with and, uh, see some of our patients on, on an ongoing basis, whenever we can fit them in, she's very busy. And so, uh, it's, it's, it's great to have you, Liz. Let's just start with a little bit about maybe defining caregiver fatigue and caregiver burnout. It seems like those terms get kind of thrown interchangeably, but I have a feeling they're very different. Yes. Well, and sometimes they are interchangeable. It depends on the literature you read and who you talk, who you talk to. So there's a couple of different terms that I want to throw out there. One is going to be secondary trauma. So secondary trauma is when you actually suffer from symptoms of post-traumatic stress because you witness the suffering of somebody close to you, and that can be acute or cumulative. So for secondary trauma, we would refer back to the episode about post-traumatic stress um, because a lot of the symptoms are going to overlap. When it comes to compassion fatigue or caregiver fatigue or caregiver burnout, what we're really looking at is when the ongoing stress outweighs the resources we have. And so burnout and fatigue tend to be more of a cumulative response. Burnout um, 
can happen over the course of several weeks or months, where fatigue can sometimes just be intermittent. So we might feel fatigue one day and be more energized the next day, depending on the resources that we have. But either way, we're looking at this ongoing cumulative effect of pouring into somebody else when maybe you don't always have the energy to sustain it at that level. Right. Do you see it more often in pediatric patients where parents get it, or is it equal across the board? I think it's equal across the board. I really, I don't necessarily think it depends on the situation or the Mm -hmm. personal characteristics of the caregiver as much as it depends on when we look at their whole life, what are the demands being made of them on their time, on their energy, on their efforts as far as the caregiving? What sacrifices are they having to make? to continue this caregiving role, how long does it go on, and what are the resources that they have in their corner to help them deal with it? So they, there's a balance somewhere. Sure. And when things get out of balance, we start to burn out and we become more fatigued. So yeah. this would be like if you were at any job and you had to work 10 or 12 hours a day with no no days off and you weren't sleeping enough, eventually the effects of that would catch up to you. Well, and you... Pam, you just ask about, you know, adults and kids and, and comparing the two. And I can certainly, as you, as Liz, you were describing that, made me think of some of our childhood, you know, cancer survivors that we used to work with previously. And I mean, those get, those little ones that have leukemia, you're talking like a three-year process. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I it just compounds and compounds and compounds on top of everything. Um, that's that's significant. It is. And, and I would say probably one of the things that makes parents in caregiver roles more vulnerable is the stress that it puts on the relationship itself. Also time away from work potentially. Yes. The mm-hmm. years and years of treatment and follow-up, but also the fact that children are inherently more powerless and can't advocate for themselves yeah. as easily. So you're also in this role of advocate as well as caregiver, which can be really overwhelming. Sure. Oh, I, you know, I, I, Some of the the folks that help our cancer survivors are really some unsung heroes. And, um, you know, I think probably our listeners are probably going, yeah, that's my spouse or that's my my sister. Or, you know, they really were there in the moment when they needed them the most. And I think our survivors sometimes have that guilt. Like, I don't want to ask my caregivers because they're burnt out. Mm. You know, they have too much on their plate. So what are some warning signs of burnout or fatigue? Okay, so that's a great question. There are a lot. I'm sure. (laughs) So, um, and there's another term that we didn't really define called the trauma exposure response, which is really what do we do in the face of human suffering when we witness it, even if it doesn't turn into post traumatic stress. There's a book called Trauma Stewardship. And it's by Lipsky and Burke. And she talks about 16 different reactions to trauma exposure. So that's a pretty good guide when we look at how does this affect people over time. One of them would be helplessness or powerlessness. So feeling like I can't really accomplish or do what I would like to do, which might be to save this person from suffering. So acknowledging the fact that this is all going on and I have a limited ability to influence how this turns out for them, the outcome. Another one would be resentment or anger. Loss of compassion is a big one. So when we have compassion fatigue, then we sometimes find it more difficult to extend compassion. So if you've ever 
had a moment where that person was calling you and you were like, oh, I just don't want to answer the phone because what are what is going to be the ask? I can't ask? deal with it. Yeah, it's too much. It's too overwhelming. So this would be a loss of compassion. Another thing that can sometimes happen with a loss of compassion is comparison. So we start to minimize or compare people's stories. And we sometimes do this when we say, oh, well, that's not as bad as so-and-so, or you should have heard what happened to me. So if somebody's telling you about suffering that they're experiencing. Um, so an example of this might be if you know my children are complaining that life is unfair, and I say, oh, let me tell you about unfair. Why don't you listen about the kids I work with from day to day? This would be minimizing their experiencing. Right. So this is another, you know, if you find that in other relationships outside of your caregiving role, you're really dismissive or you're minimizing sure. their pain or you're annoyed at their pain or you're comparing their pain or your own, that would be a sign. Another thing that we look for is a sense of grandiosity. So this is where I believe I'm the only one who can manage this. I therefore cannot ask for help because nobody else will get it, and they could not possibly take care of my loved one the way that I could. Mm -hmm. So I'm starting to carry too much. That's really not my job to carry because I think I'm the only one who could do it. So this prevents me from asking for help and maybe accessing some of the resources I might need. And then, of course, there's also physical signs, you know, illnesses, um, that you know my own immune response might begin to suffer because I'm not getting adequate rest. Sure. So it's complicated because there's a lot of little things that we're looking for, but a big one would probably be. I think the biggest one to me would maybe be loss of compassion. I, you know, I, I, I as I gave my little scenario, and I, I'm not, you know, going to belabor that point, but I, I felt that way. I did like. Mm-hmm. I just got something for you. You need something else. And I don't mean that, you know, I love my wife dearly. I don't, I know, but that's where I was uh, after several months. And you just kind of reached that point where, and then all of a sudden it was like, wait a minute, what am I saying? Why am I thinking this? And that's what a lot of people experience. They, they feel maybe anger or a loss of compassion, but then they feel guilt. Yes. Yes. And, And what happens. And I think part of the answer to this is, not only asking for help, and, att- and we'll talk about some of the different things to attend to, but living in the gray. So I think what happens sometimes when we're in a caregiving role or when we're dealing with circumstances that just don't feel sustainable is we pendulate between taking all the responsibility. Like, I have to do all of this. I have to manage all of this. I can't ask for help. I'm the only one who gets it, to then trying to reject all of it. I just can't handle it anymore. Don't talk to me. I'm going to numb out. I'm going to – that's another one, numbing or avoidance. I'm just going to go over here and pretend it's not happening. So kind of going back and forth between taking it all of it on or avoiding it completely. Um, Two opposite extremes. Right. <laughs> wow. And there's 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 a balance somewhere in the middle, and, and that's what we're looking for. And there's – so the, I told you this book, Trauma Stewardship, and there's a quote from it that I really appreciated, and it says, somewhere between the ethic of martyrdom, which is where I'm sacrificing all mm-hmm. of my needs and feelings, and ignoring the crisis is the balance that allows us to sustain our work. Yeah. So it can't be one or the other. There's it a sweet spot in the middle. And boy, is it hard to find. Absolutely. It's different for everybody too. And it's negotiable. That sweet spot is negotiable, meaning it will probably change depending on the circumstances and the resources that you have as you proceed. So is it true that um, you can't take care of others unless you take care of yourself? Yes. Yes, it is. Well, 
again, it's not black and white. So I think what we can do in the short term is different than what we can do in the long term. Mm -hmm. So there might be moments in life where I neglect my needs in order to care for somebody else, and that might be appropriate. Sure. So maybe I have a sick child who mm-hmm. is throwing up all night and or or maybe they need breathing treatments or there's something mm-hmm. going on and I have to sacrifice sleep or eating or my my the needs at my work or, or mm-hmm. whatever. But I can't sustain that over the long term. So what is sustainable for a day or a week is so different than what is sustainable for a month or a year. And so we have to keep that in mind as we negotiate our boundaries. I like to view it as stewardship, and I, I think that this is true not just for caregiving, but really for for work, mm-hmm. for um, parenting, for anything that we give energy to. We have to be good stewards because our time and our energy are finite. They are sure. not unlimited resources. So when I attend to my own needs, it allows me to be a good steward of the resources that I have so that I can continue to work according to my purpose and calling and do something that I love for a long time. So, for example, when I set boundaries around how many clients I see, so Ryan mentioned that I'm busy, yeah. <laughs> I'm also really, really strict about the hours that I'm willing to work. Mm-hmm. They, I'm just super rigid because everything's an emergency. Everybody right. who calls me is in pain. So when I have boundaries that allow me to be a good steward, then the energy that I give to people is, I mean, it's adequate sometimes, not not always depending on the situation, but I'm able to be fully present with them and I'm able to enjoy my work and feel energized when I do it. And so I think caregiving is similar. You have to have times away from your caregiving role so that you can be a good steward of the role that you've been called to. I know oftentimes whenever I meet with survivors and their caregivers, the caregivers always express, well, I would like to do this, but I feel guilty because Mm. I need to be there for that patient. And so, you know, it's hard to that balance. Uh, Yeah. Well, and I would say that that's that all or nothing thinking. And because I think sometimes when they feel that they are responsible for meeting these needs or um, fulfilling this caregiving role in isolation, then they're usually forced to choose between resentment and guilt. So guilt when I leave or do something different and resentment when I stay. And neither of those are healthy places to be. Yeah. And I bet too, when the guilt of going and doing something, it's not quite the recharge that that caregiver is needing or looking for because there's still that thought in their their mind of, I I wonder, I hope everything's okay or Mm. this. And, you know, there is a time and and I, this is something that, that we've talked about as a family before is, you know, there are, there are times that you need to recharge, unplug, recharge so that you can be ever present in, like you just said, what you need to be there for. Absolutely. And you need relationships outside of your caregiving role. Um, and potentially relationships outside of the family unit that's also dealing with this. So, and the reason that this is important, and I'll talk about this from, so I, I have an individual that I have worked with who suffers from a chronic terminal illness, and they require a lot of help and support. But what happens is sometimes their caregiver, because they don't have a lot of other relationship, will express their sadness or their grief or their frustration 
to this individual. And that's not something this individual can really hold because now they feel guilty for the illness that they have, even though it's not their fault that they have it. And so it's immensely important for this caregiver to have support outside of that relationship and that role so that they're managing the grief that they feel and getting support and help and compassion for their grief and not putting that on the person who's already suffering from the illness. And so I would say that the ability to do that and step away will actually improve your ability to give appropriate compassionate care. Oh, and it certainly would be beneficial for both. Absolutely. (laughs) Right in that situation Mm -hmm. right there, I can't imagine the guilt. Yeah, and so by not having that, by not sharing that and being able to do things outside, oh my goodness, that's powerful. That would be very important. Um, Liz, talk to us about, you know, so we've talked about like the characteristics. How... And I don't know if my situation was was unique, but in in your experience, do you find that people in this situation, like a caregiver, they recognize that they're starting to get burnt out, or is it not so much their self recognition, or is it someone else, like maybe the person they're caring for saying, "You need to go and do and take a break"? And how how does that play out? You know, I think maybe it's both. I think for most people, it's that you know, we, we know about that metaphor with the frog in the boiling water. Right. It sneaks up on us because we might be able to sustain it for a week or a month. Sure. We might be like, this is okay. Mm-hmm. But then after a while, it begins to take a toll and it might take a toll in ways that aren't in our immediate awareness until other people observe it in us. And they point it out and say, hey, you need a break here. And the whole guilt and responsibility piece is such a big part of it because we may not feel like we can adequately step away because we've already taken on this responsibility. And how do we now shift it if we've already taken it on and agreed to this role? Yeah, I'm I'm in it. I'm in too deep. Mm -hmm. I can't, you know, I've already told people I don't need help. Mm, Yeah. And how do you come back from that? And you're allowed to come back from that because the, the boundaries are negotiable. They're not set in stone. We, we can renegotiate them depending on our needs at the time and the resources that we have. And so I think that's really important to do. And I had another thought here, you know, kind of thinking about some of these dynamics. And the other one is that sometimes when we get caught up in really doing all of this work, it can make us feel really good and important. And our identity can start to be wrapped up in this caregiving role, just like our identity can be wrapped up in this role of the sick person. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was working with a, a cancer survivor in individual therapy, and this was a childhood survivor, one of the things that, that they talked about was, I'm sad that I'm not special anymore. Mm. And because all of a sudden, it, life was just ordinary once they had reached remission. And I think sometimes caregivers can feel that way too. Their identity can be wrapped up in this caregiving role and they can feel almost a little bit lost outside of that role or allowing other people to come in because there might be something about being the most important person um, in, in the room. And so, and that's complicated and we, we want to come from a place of curiosity like what, it, what is the benefit of staying in this caregiving role? We don't want to be critical or judgmental here. We just want to be really curious about are there benefits to this role for them? Does it allow them 
to avoid something else? Does, does, do they get some identity or some value from this? What's going on here? And staying really mindful and curious about that with that person. And there also might be risks inherent in stepping away. So we talked about this in the post-traumatic stress episode where we understand that doing something different can feel really risky. Right. So what's the risk of stepping away from that role? Oh, yes. And so it's, it's complicated here. And so when we, we see this in people or we see this in ourselves or we're addressing it in some way, we want to make sure we're always coming from a lens of curiosity rather than being critical. So how do people um, help themselves not get wrapped up in that role? So I think there's a couple of, so there's a couple of concepts here that mm-hmm. I want to talk about and, and we can talk about strategies too. So one of the strategies would be making sure that there is help available for the caregiver outside of the relationship with the person who's suffering from the illness. Yeah. So asking for help. Now, again, asking for help, it's not always just a skill set. Sometimes asking for help comes with a lot of other stuff like guilt sure. or you know, identity crisis or, or whatever. So we want to make sure that we honor the fact that it's complicated. And it's not just that they don't have the skills to use the words to ask for help. Right. So at this point, would coming to like our um, survivor um, Our support counsel- group. Your, your counsel- support group, mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Even for the caregiver. Even for the caregivers. We mm-hmm. have some caregivers who attend regularly. Right. Mm-hmm. And they are just accepted as part of the group. It's really beautiful to witness. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing, if I can interrupt, because it's hard to ask for help. And I have the feeling, because I've done it, um, you know, uh, an acquaintance or friend or, 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 or someone that I know, you know, their spouse is diagnosed with cancer. Hey, let me know how I can help you, you know? And they go, oh, okay. And, you know, it's like that ask is out there in this nebulous and they don't ever ask like for specific help. But something I heard you say earlier kind of ties in with this is you said it's okay for the boundaries to adjust. And at the time that you say, oh no, I think we're good right now. We're we're okay. When that moment gets to where it's not okay or you need help, reach back out. I mean, that's what I'm hearing, right? Right. And be as specific as possible. I need help with this. Yes. Now, but what I will say though, is that so we all have different temperaments and personality types. And we there are people who are askers and people who are assumers. Right. <laughs> the assumer says, if you really wanted to do it, you would. And I wouldn't have to ask. The asker says, if you need something, you'll ask. So I think, and, and neither one is pathological. It's just we come from different cultural makeups so there are some people who come from an ask culture and some people who come from an assume culture where we just assume, well, if they really wanted to do it, they would. I'm not going to bother them. And it's rude to ask. This is, this is maybe a cultural thing, mm-hmm. depending on your family of origin. So what I would say to that is, is if you are somebody who wants to extend help to a family unit who's walking through cancer and you are extending help to the caregiver, you can say, I'm going to make you a meal. When is a good time to come by? Wow. So it's okay to be forward in your giving of help, 
but this is this is tricky because people have boundaries and we want to honor the boundaries and they might be like, you know what, it's not really a good time right now and maybe that's okay and we respect that and we honor the boundary or it is okay and we respect that and we honor the boundary. But I think for people on the outside, sometimes it's also okay to be specific. Sure. Rather than saying, hey, let me know. I would like to clean your house for you. When is a good time? Would that be okay? When is you can come time over to come today? <laughs> yeah, like, um, I would like you. I would like to bring you a meal. When mm-hmm. is a good time to come by? Would that be okay? Is that something that you guys are open to? Rather than just let me know what you need. Right. Because right. sometimes when we say let me know what you need, people probably aren't going to really let us know what they need. True. And so I, I do think there's. It's a little bit tricky sometimes, but if you're extending help to a family that you are familiar with, maybe you can be a little bit more forward. And I've also seen too with caregivers. So in that instance, we're talking more about how the person reaching out to someone Mm -hmm. is the asker or the doer. Mm -hmm. I've also seen too with some caregivers, they fall into one of those two categories. Absolutely. And sometimes if you say, hey, I'm going to come and do this, they get... No, no, no. You're supposed to ask when it, right. there, there's a, there's a, 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 almost a butting of heads, if it you will. It feels like a boundary violation. Right. Like, no, no, no. I didn't ask you do to you come Do you remember and when we talked to Lindsay um, Norris, she was talking about how she had young kids yes. and people were like, I'm going to go pick up your kids. And it really offended her because mm-hmm. she wanted to she spend want as much time, time as possible with, Yeah, with because them. here she was diagnosed with cancer. So there's that fine boundary. How do we know... Which line, I mean, how to go? Well, so I think asking people where their boundary is mm-hmm. and, and being curious about that. So maybe being specific with the ways in which you would like to help or the ways in right. which you need help, but also making sure that you get consent and permission. Right, mm-hmm. right. And, you know, it takes several asks, I think, too, mm-hmm. in my opinion, you know, to get to that point where, Maybe the caregiver who feels like they're doing it all and I can handle it all to when you ask that third time and they go, okay, finally. Yeah, I could I could use X, Y, or one, two, and three. Right. And this is so complicated because people's histories come into play here. Uh-huh. What is yeah. What does it mean to receive help? Mm-hmm. And I, I was talking to a family member the other day and they they said, you know, Liz, I just can't stand the thought of anybody ever having to take care of me. Maybe I need counseling for that. And we both kind of laughed a little bit, but it prevents this, this family member of mine from asking for help mm-hmm. because there's, there's a value, there's a judgment placed on asking for help. And I would be so bold as to say, if we are placing value on the, the asker or the receiver of the help, you know, I don't think that we can give help and assistance without judgment unless we can receive it without judgment. Because at the end of the day, we are all human. Mm-hmm. So if I'm saying that the giver is better in some way, and I would never be on the end of the receiver, then I don't think I can really give without judgment. So being able to receive without judgment, I think is part of our ongoing work. But again, I think it's complicated because it's influenced by people's histories and probably their culture and all of these different things that we have to take into consideration. And and from the outside looking in, it is not your job to figure that out for every individual that you hope to help. <laughs> right. So you can let yourself off the hook there. But I do think that there is something to inquiring about the boundaries that they hold, 
but also being specific with what you can and cannot do to, to help them. Right. Do you find it that females have a harder time to ask for help versus males? I don't or is know. Equal? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe. I, I see both, though. I see sure. both. Because I feel like sometimes women are the doers. They just, they run the tight ship at home. And I feel like it would be harder sometimes for, especially moms, maybe, to even ask. Yeah, and I think that has to do with just the expectations that are placed. But I also think there's maybe less judgment for women who ask for help. But it's okay to ask for help as the bottom line. It is okay to ask for help and absolutely necessary. Yes. Absolutely necessary. Because again, if we look at this at, you know, what I'm concerned about for people is, are they being a good steward of their energy and time so that they can continue to fulfill these roles and is it sustainable? Yeah. You know, you feel, I mean, at first, right, you feel, I can handle this. I got big S on my chest, right? right. You know, Superman. And then it really does begin to wear down. Mm-hmm. It does. So that's kind of one of the things we talked about, about recognition or recognizing. And, and one of the things that they can do is reach out for help. Is there any other you know, tips or, or uh, things that they need to watch for that they can combat it? Yes. So, so there's a couple of other things that I want to talk about as far as actual strategies. So one would be human connection. Right. So asking for help when you need it, human connection, maybe having some rituals that allow you to care for yourself. Uh, mindfulness is a great one. Mm-hmm. So mindfulness allows us to connect to the present moment rather than maybe numbing or avoiding. It al- also allows us to recognize some of the feelings that we feel and what the source of those might be if we're feeling resentment or guilt and some of those things. But to kind of look at it conceptually, there's a couple of things that I would want to mention here. One is you need to attend to your responsibility. So having an appropriate view of your responsibility is really important here. So we're talking about living in the gray, which is we don't want to take all of the responsibility for the health and well-being of the person that we're taking care of because, frankly, we don't have that much power. And when we are carrying too much responsibility, when we're bearing things that aren't ours to bear, what will happen is we'll end up feeling more powerless because we can't live up to the task. We can't actually do that job. So we go from feeling all this responsibility, like we are the ones who must hold all the power and all the responsibility to to feeling completely powerless, which might cause us to avoid. So the gray area here would be, what is my job and what's not my job? How do I manage my responsibility? Um, I shared with this with you guys earlier, but I had a spiritual mentor one time say, Liz, they have a savior. It's not you. <laughs> and, and kind of coming back to that like humbling place where I acknowledge that there are things that I cannot influence. I, I cannot be in charge of the outcome. I, my yeah. power is limited here. So mm-hmm. when it comes to cancer, we don't control the outcome. We, we influence it. I think modern medicine has given us um, ways that we can facilitate healing, but we have to be sure that we are managing our responsibility. What's my job? What's not? Now, with that being said, I can extend care to somebody without taking responsibility for them. So let's say I do want to come and clean your house because you're struggling. Am I responsible for keeping your house clean? No, no, but but can I choose to do that as an act of care? 
Yes. And I think when we give generously, because as an act of care, it energizes us. Sure. But when we give because we feel it's our responsibility, we and it, it starts to feel a little bit like a chore, and we might resent it a little bit more. And mm-hmm. it, now it's not energizing, it's draining. So it feels different. So we need to be aware of what's my job and what's not. What's my responsibility and what's not? Is it my job to make sure that this person gets to all of their medical appointments? Maybe yes, maybe no. Is it my job to make sure that they always take all of their medication? Maybe yes, maybe no. Right. Right. Uh, People have choices here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So I need to be aware of what is my job and what is not my job. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I tell you, I want to interject here and and I want to make sure everybody's listening to what I'm about to say. Because I think this is, I wrote this down as we're sitting here talking because I think it's very important um, to, to pass this along. And you just hit it right on the head after I've written it down. You talked about, is it my job to make sure that um, my loved one gets to their doctor's appointment or gets to their treatment? So let's say, for instance, um, you know, you need to take a loved one to their infusion for their, their chemotherapy. And they're going to be there for several hours. Um you don't necessarily have to take them. We have a service that we can provide for that. And that can be just that little bit of help. Mm-hmm. It's called chemo cars. And it's a very unique opportunity to know that someone will get taken from the house to the treatment center and return back to the house um, in a safe manner. And, um, you know, that may be that, that you know, a uh, couple of hours of respite that maybe a caregiver uh, needs because they can do that. So here's what I'm going to say. If you are curious about chemo cars, give us a call at the Survivorship Center at 331-2400. There is no charge, just like everything we do here, right, Pam? That's right. No charge whatsoever. And to me, I would gladly love to be able to provide that service for a caregiver that says, if I could just have, you know, two hours to go to the gym, or I could have the this to finish this task or do this, or I can do my work and therefore I'm, I'm done for the rest of the day. And you're not, you're not neglecting your loved one or the one that you're caring for, um, in that instance. And so I want to make sure everyone knows, um, about that service called chemo cars, call the center, ask the questions and we'll get you plugged in. Yeah. That's such a great resource, such a great resource. And, and that's what we're talking about here is, you know, how can I be a good steward of, the, the time and the energy that I have and in mm. what ways can I also call upon other organizations um, and the resources they have so that I can maybe reserve my time and energy for other tasks that are my responsibility. Yeah. And, and here's the thing, the responsibility is probably going to be dependent on the individual and the situation sure. and the resources that they have at hand. But there are going to be some things that caregivers might take on that are the um, the sufferer's responsibility. So if you have a spouse taking care of their, uh, taking care of their partner who is walking through cancer, there may be things that their partner is responsible for. You don't have to take ownership of all of it. And again, this is so case dependent and it just, there, there are some things that you negotiate moving through this. Right. And, Another, you know, we already talked about responsibility for the outcome, and I think that's really important here too, is recognizing that you could do everything right and still not have the outcome you want. 
True. So when you're taking on too much responsibility and then you still get an outcome that you didn't foresee, it's potentially devastating, but then you're left with a lot of guilt and blame and it, sure. and the grief becomes a lot heavier. It's always heavy, but now you have probably what's called traumatic grief, which is a little bit different than what we would call uncomplicated bereavement, even though it's always a little bit complicated. <laughs> so responsibility yeah. is a really big one. And another one to think about, we went, mentioned this in the post-traumatic stress episode, but that's spirituality. So spirituality, religion aside, is just your sense of meaning, purpose, and hope. So we are able to tolerate a lot more suffering when we have a clear sense of meaning, purpose, and hope. If I am taking care of somebody who is suffering and I am bearing witness to their pain, but I have no source of purpose or hope, it's going to devastate me and I'm going to burn out much quicker. So making sure that we stay connected to whatever that is for us. And again, I think there's a lot of uh, places where we can get assistance in seeking that out. Sure. So that's a big one to attend to is, is there still hope in the midst of this suffering that we are enduring as a family or as a partnership? And then the other thing to think about would be grief. So grief applies to any sense of loss, not just death, but this is also a factor when we're talking about sustaining this situation that's potentially devastating, but, but grief applies any time life does not look the way that we hoped it would look. So hmm. my life is yeah. different now. Um, there might be, so for childhood cancer survivors, there might be loss of potential. Like what is this child's life? What could it have looked like with, without cancer being a part of it? Hmm. With some people, it's what does it look like now that my body's different after breast cancer? What does it look like now that I can't do this job I was doing before because I've had to adjust my schedule for treatment? Right. Whether you're the caregiver or the um, sufferer of cancer. Like, there's a lot of things that we have to grieve when we enter into this journey. So managing this ongoing grief, I think, is a big part of sustaining our role as caregivers. Sure. Oh, my gosh. I. I just feel a huge like weight just listening to all of this for the folks that we see and that we serve. Right. And you know, sometimes I think we think of grief only associated with death, death. but it's a lot more than that. So much more than that. And grief happens when we stop trying when we stop trying to fix and control things. So when we are trying to fix and control, when we are taking all of the responsibility because we want to control the outcome or because we have that sense of grandiosity it prevents us from grieving appropriately. Mm -hmm. So when we find that gray area, it will come with grief. Yeah. What about just learning to say no? I mean, is that something helpful? Yes. It, it's complicated. <laughs> so, well, Pam, when you figure that out, let me know. Because so, you know, I mean, I as a caregiver, I feel like I'd have to do everything and saying no isn't okay. Yes. Well, and a lot of people feel that way. And mm -hmm. so I did a training recently and somebody uh, who had attended there, a, a friend of mine made me a shirt that says it's complicated because apparently I use that phrase a lot. <laughs> I'm going to start working that one in. It's complicated. <laughs> but, but it's even saying no is complicated because if you've grown up in a culture where saying no was selfish or not okay, mm -hmm. then there's there might be value placed on that. If you have trauma where you survived by complying, Saying no might feel fundamentally unsafe and dangerous 
and you know, so we're we're thinking about like situations where there might have been domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's complicated because saying no, just like asking for help, is not just a skill set. Sometimes our identity is wrapped up in it, our value system is wrapped up in it, our safety is wrapped up in it. Sometimes we feel that saying no will break connections with other people. If you sometimes if you set a boundary with somebody who doesn't understand boundaries well, saying no feels like abandonment to them. So people will misunderstand or misinterpret that based on their own experiences. And so it becomes pretty complicated. It's not just a skill set that we have to learn. It can feel really, really risky. If I've learned that my value and identity come from caring for somebody else, and that is my job, it's my job to be a martyr to their suffering and their treatment, then saying no might feel like I'm rejecting that role uh-huh. to a great degree. And so there's there's something going on internally that we have to sort out. And so figuring out what's my responsibility and what's not is a big part of that. Uh-huh. And then recognizing that people might misinterpret my boundaries and I have to tolerate that and be okay with it. Sure, yeah. Um, Understanding that I might draw limits around my responsibility, but there's always a chance other people won't pick up the slack. So what if no one else does it? That's that's a possibility. But saying no is also not a weakness either. It's not a weakness. I would say it takes way more courage to say no than (laughs) it does not to. I would agree. Um, It takes a lot of courage because there's inherent risk in saying no sometimes. But it's more than just a skill set. And it's absolutely essential to maintain the work that you do as a caregiver or even for the work that you both do in the survivorship center. And I remember one time... So I I have a private practice, and I remember early in my practice, I got a phone call with somebody, and they told me, if you really cared, you would find a way to fit me in. Oh. Mm. And my, and it was like, oh, but I do really care. I don't want you to think I don't care. Like, Mm -hmm. is that what you think? Do you think I don't care? Because I I have said that there are these limits around my schedule. That, That hurts a little bit. It stings. But can I allow them to think that so that I can sustain my work? Because the alternative is that I will squeeze them in and then I will probably resent them for it. Mm -hmm. And our therapeutic relationship will not be healthy, at least not in the beginning, because now I'll have to reconcile um, that in some way. And so my response to this was, counselors are allowed to have boundaries too. (laughs) Because we are. It's complicated. It's complicated. (laughs) And, and, And of course, this person is coming from their own woundedness and their own hurt and this sort of misinterpretation of if you don't do this, you don't care kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot we're battling here. But if I look at it as stewardship and I say, for me to sustain this role and to give you the best possible care, to love you well without resentment, I have to set boundaries. It is the only thing that will allow me to continue to love you well in the face of all this suffering and these demands that are placed on both of us. So even though it might hurt in the moment when I say no to somebody, it's going to protect our relationship. Right. Is that what we call tough love? Mm, maybe. Maybe. A little bit. <laughs> maybe, you know, yeah. And I, and I think back to some of the folks that I have known that have gone through treatment and um, that have had this big support network, mm. you know, like this big team. And it wasn't just 
you know, a, a one person team. I mean, it was like mm-hmm. this Whole family, this person is going to update the caring bridge and this person is going to coordinate meals and this person is going to, and you know, sometimes you feel like they have an army behind them. But now after listening through some of this, I'm like, that's, if you have that luxury, if you have that network, that can be such a humongous benefit. It's huge. It's huge. I mean, I mean, it's, it just thinks, makes me think back to some folks that I know that didn't have that. And then you mm. see the burnout and the, and the fatigue and how easily that can set in. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think human connection is one of our biggest resources here. Mm-hmm. And again, I said this when we did the podcast last time I was here, but this is where the survivorship really shines is in the ability to connect people to human relationship which is a huge resource. Right. And that's why we say, Pam, bring your caregiver. Right. Caregivers. You know, there are times where we have to say, "Mm, cancer survivor plus one. Right. You know, where we have a limited Mm. uh, amount of seats or a limited amount of um, um, access. Right. But normally it's like, you know, bring, you know, your two sisters that were your, are or were your caregivers and, Come to yoga. It's that self-care for that caregiver. Right. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. we have lots of um, exercise classes, health yes. and wellness programs for them to benefit from. And and just so everyone knows, too, this is not a somber place. No, it's <laughs> not. I mean, it's not. It, it is a place where we, we, are, we are very sad that you have to be here, but we're glad you're here because we have resources to help you. And, you know, um, we don't dwell on the fact that you do or that, you know, have or have had cancer. That, that, that there, you know, it's, it's, it's funny internally. We kind of chuckle when someone comes and says, well, how do I prove that I have that or had that? I'm like, you just being here is proof enough. I mean, that's perfect. We don't need to see your port scar or we don't need to see, you know, we don't need to, we don't need that. It's the honor system. Yes. And so bring your caregiver, bring your loved one. Um, throw them in the pool at water exercise, but, but, but remember, I think rule number one is that you don't get Betty's hair wet. No. So anybody who's listening, who is a part of water exercise, that is clearly stated as rule number one is Betty does not get her, the instructor, uh, does not get her hair wet. Right. I feel like I've learned a lot today. How about you, Ryan? Uh, yes. You know, sometimes Pam and you and I've talked about this on occasions. Sometimes I feel like, um, with some of our, our, our topics and our, our guests, I leave thinking differently. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, instead of me, sometimes I, I've been known just to reach out via text and say, checking in on you, because I want to give someone who's going through that journey some space. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be like, oh, here's Ryan again texting. How are we doing? Oh, he works at the survivorship center. Oh, he's probably wanting, you know, whatever. <laughs> That's not it. You know, I just want to touch it, let them know that I'm, I'm thinking, how are things going? I'm going to be a little more direct. Mm-hmm. I think I think I can do that mm-hmm. and say, instead of saying, let me know, is when would be a good time? And right. I think that's, I, I do. I, I've, I find myself, even all these years after working with uh, cancer survivors and working in and around cancer, I still have a lot to learn. Right. And I also think we can't get offended if that cancer survivor doesn't text us back. The right. plates are full. Yes. Right. And they that might be their boundary. Not all boundaries are verbal. Right. And so, um, and maybe I, I think I like the idea of asking for consent or permission first, where you say, I would like to do this. When is that okay? When would be a good time? Mm-hmm. There's a couple other statements that can help here too. 
So one of the ones I really like is an I notice statement. So this is where we just make a, an objective observation. I notice that you haven't been here in a few weeks. I notice you've been really quiet lately. Um, I've, I've noticed that you are sleeping more or mm-hmm. just an I notice statement. But basically what you're saying is I see you. So compassion to some degree is just seeing people without judgment. And so an I notice statement can help you open up the conversation. Um, another thing that you can do when you, when you make these statements is maybe they confirm it, maybe they deny it, maybe they don't answer you at all. Mm-hmm. But if they engage, you can then ask them, what do you need from me? Or what would be helpful? What would be something helpful that I could do? Right. So then asking them to be specific. So letting them be responsible for asking for what they need rather than assuming that you know. And so that, I think that language can be helpful too. So I've, I've noticed that you haven't been here in a while and they're like, yeah, I've just been really tired. And then you can say, I, he- I hear that. I hear that you've been tired lately. Is there anything that we could do that might be helpful? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and they might be like, no, that's okay. And then you can say, no problem. Would it be okay if I checked in with you next week? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so kind of starting to use this language that, and I think one of the things I like about that language too, is you're putting responsibility back on them to ask for what they need rather Mm -hmm. than responsibility on you to know what it is and then meet it. Exactly. That's what I struggle with is like, Mm -hmm. and sometimes for lack of a better way of describing it, somebody says, you're the cancer guy. You, you guys work at what, what's best, you know? And you're like, no, it's all, it's complicated. It's complicated. And, and it works differently like for it. Exactly. For everyone. Mm-hmm. And so rather than me knowing that you need dinner on Thursday night, it's, yeah, that's the way to do it is say, what can I do to help? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would be helpful? Right. An open-ended question. Yes. Um, rather than let me know what you need. So, so yeah, and again, I think the language here, does it doesn't have to be perfect, but I think what we're doing is we're allowing people to have their boundaries, but we're also opening the door to provide help without them maybe feeling pressure to, or, or feeling guilt for asking in some way, yeah. or just sort of relieving them from that a little bit. But True. And what I would say, too, is, again, going back to this idea that caregivers are allowed to ask for help. This is really hard. This is really, really hard. And it's allowed to be hard. And so removing um, the expectation that you do it right or you do it better, but just acknowledging that this is a hard place to be. There's no manual. There's no manual. Um, And I will say finally, just kind of to throw a resource out there. So Kristen Neff has a website and it's www.self-compassion.org. And she has some self-compassion meditations and exercises on that website. And I find her tools to be a really good way to respond to grief. So for the caregiver who is moving through this, part of the work might be to think about and talk to yourself different. And self-compassion is a good place to start. Yeah. Where you acknowledge your own suffering in this rather than placing shoulds or judgments or minimizing or over-identifying all of these things that aren't compassion, that might be a good place to start. And she's got some really simple stuff that you could get on there and do in five minutes. 
That's a great resource. What about here, Ryan? Is there any resources that they oh, can reach out Pam, to? Oh, we, we could go on for <laughs> a long time, right? Yeah, right. You know, and in reality, like uh, uh, one of the great resources is here recording the podcast with us is w- one of our two licensed professional counselors. Right. And, um, you know, we, we've said it time and time again, we really do have great uh, instructors, great counselors. Um, you know, the resources that we have. So whether it's that or whether it is um, art class or whether it is um, a painting class that we might do or a hike, mm-hmm. you know, at the canyon or walking group, you know, just a change of scenery. Mm-hmm. And there is no shame if, for instance, because it's happened, I know you know, it's happened where the caregiver comes, but the survivor is not up to coming today. Right. There, it, it's not a, it's not a twofer. I mean, it's, it's, there's, it's not, well, if they're not here, you can't come in. That's not <laughs> it at all. And so, you know, walking group, uh, water exercise, yoga, Tai Chi, you know, talking about being present in the moment is yoga and Tai Chi and Qigong, Qigong and all of these things that, mm. um, you know, we have, we have access to those. So we encourage you, you know, it, you, if you come and you go, Oh no, that's not for me. I guarantee you there's something that we have that, that is better for you or maybe something you're more likely to enjoy. Absolutely. And I, I want to mention one more thing about self-care because that's what we're talking about here too is how do we use the, the uh, Survivorship Center to facilitate opportunities for self-care. So just really quick because I believe the way we think about these things matters. There's a big difference between punitive self-care where I'm doing these things because I have to or because I'm not good enough and compassionate self-care, which is I'm doing these things because I'm awesome and I deserve to be cared for. And so making sure that our mindset is different and this isn't just another thing you have to do to be good at the caregiving role. This is you deserve care because you're valuable. Right. And this is hard. Taking the time for yourself. Well, I think you hit it on the head numerous times but right there caregivers are valuable very much very so. very valuable the, do not ever diminish or think mm-hmm. that you are not valuable yeah. if you're a caregiver right one last thing that we like to um, leave our listeners with is a Pete's powerful moment we are sponsored by Pete's car smart Kia Liz do you have a powerful moment you would like to share with us hmm so I think what maybe something to be to be shared during this time would be, I think back on when I had the opportunity to work with the parents of childhood survivors and seeing that group come together and support each other and talking about their impact and their role, but also getting to see them honor the roles of other people in the room Mm -hmm. and the way that they promote care for each other as a community, because it's a small community. It is. And the way that they are able to promote care for their little ones and just, it's cool to witness. And I I would, to piggyback off of that too, when I was able to do a sibling group here, it was cool to see sibling groups come together and care for each other, not only the sibling who had suffered from cancer, but also the the other siblings within the family unit. And my kids fight all the time. (laughs) And so it's really cool when you get these moments of sibling groups that just really have each other's back. Yeah. Wow. It's powerful. That is. 
Today's episode has been powerful. It has been. Well, Lots I, of information. I Yes. Um, I hope it's been empowering as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe given some caregivers a, maybe a new lease on life in terms of the situations they're going through. Um, you know, easiest thing for you guys to do is, is give us a call here at the Survivorship Center if you mm-hmm. have questions. You know, I, I listen to the podcast and I don't understand what to do. I'm not real sure. Give us a call. You know, we, we don't proclaim to have all the answers, but we know people that do, and we can get you in touch. We can, um, that's important. So, uh, again, that phone number is 806-331-2400. Um, you can find a lot of, um, some meditation classes and things on our website. Uh, it's the number two, four survivorship.org. Um, they're on demand. They're there. And you can do those whenever you want. We have several great options on there. And then, Pam, what do we need them to do about the podcast? Let's like all the buttons, share it with all your friends, um, give us some feedback. We would love to hear it. And I would like to personally thank Liz for coming in and sharing all the information. It was a great episode. Yes. I tell you, it it is. And if you, again, I I said it earlier, if you haven't listened to the uh, PTSD episode, please go do that. Also, we, we touched a little bit. It's, it's interesting how a lot of these, our episodes, um, build on each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a really good episode on self-care, uh, with Mary Margaret Gertie. So mm-hmm. we encourage you guys, um, if you're curious about what self-care is and how it can be done and what that looks like, again, it's complicated because it's very <laughs> individualistic. Uh, you, you, we learned in there that Pam's uh, version of self-care is not going to be the same thing as mine. She likes to bake. I like to ride bikes. Those are on opposite ends of the spectrum. And uh, it might be more stressful for me to bake as it may be more stressful for Pam to go for a Oof. long bike ride. Yes. <laughs> All kidding aside, we, we love visiting with you guys on Tuesdays. Uh, I hope you look forward to the newest episode of Beyond the Ribbon, much like we do. And uh, be sure, as Pam said, like, like it, review it, share it with your friends, subscribe to it, and be back here next week for the next episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Make sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and follow us on social media for news and updates. If you'd like more information about the 24 Hours in the Canyon Cancer Survivorship Center, please visit our website, 24survivorship.org. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week.